You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham joins the Post to discuss her state's vaccine distribution and her plan to ensure vaccine equity. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Eugene Scott, a political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post, and I'm delighted to welcome back New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham to Washington Post Live. So good seeing you again, Governor. It's uh, really good seeing you too, Eugene, and I assume you're staying well and safe, and that's also true about your family and friends. That is very true uh, for me and for us, and I certainly hope the same for you as well. And, and we're really looking forward to hearing how uh, you have kept so many uh, new Mexicans uh, safe, or at least helped keep them safe, and what other states and citizens and political leaders can learn from what you all uh, have done correctly there. So uh, if you don't mind, we're just going to go right into the questions now. And um, I, I want to hear your thoughts, hear your thoughts on, you know, all of these like logistical problems we're seeing a lot of states have uh, with their rollout. We, we know that New Mexico has pr done pretty well and, and administered the highest percentage of vaccines in the nation uh, based on what you've received, of course. So how did you accomplish that? Like what, what was your strategy that made you all so effective? Well, uh, frankly, I think it's threefold. One, it's important to note that New Mexico is a centralized public health delivery system. And I have to say that that's an advantage. Uh, and I don't want to opine about why states, uh, particularly large population states where you have a huge population, much bigger than the population of New Mexico in one county. I can understand how you have to have county by county public health systems, but then it really creates a number of barriers potentially and issues when you're fighting a pandemic. So we don't have that issue. We're a centralized state system. Two, we were probably the first state in the nation to set up a really robust private-public partnership in the delivery of everything COVID, right? Our hospitals were coordinated, both public and private hospitals, where patients were going. We coordinated on PPP, we coordinated on PPE, I mean, on testing. We did all of that work a year ago. So when it came time to have the vaccines, we did the same effort. We leveraged public and private folks. We can do, we're doing well more than, uh, uh, we can do 50,000, I should say, vaccines a day. Uh, and we're nowhere close to that. So we just need supply. So we just set up an infrastructure. Third thing we did uh, so that shots can go into arms. And Eugene, probably the most important thing is we created uh, a data registry system that pushes out appointments, that helps people get to appointments. You can do it over the telephone, reaches hard to reach populations, doesn't allow us to waste vaccine, and really to the highest degree possible, allows you to hold priority populations in the positions they should be in to have access to the vaccine. And I think all three of those things have certainly uh, made us incredibly successful and we wanna do more. I'm sure there is much uh, to be done. And based on your previous experience, uh, Secretary of Health for uh, New Mexico in the early 2000s, uh, you have dealt with some of these major challenges in terms of trying to get uh, multiple people the health treatment that they need. How would you say that holding that position uh, influenced your approach today to combating this virus and how you organize the vaccine rollout? 
Uh, well, I want to give a shout out to the former Secretary of Health, uh, a woman by the name of Kathleen Kunkel, who's incredible, and the current Secretary of Health, Dr. Tracy Collins, uh, who both had incredible expertise in these areas. And uh, I pale in comparison to the work that they have done during a once in a hundred years, so century pandemic. Uh, but my experience there is have real clarity on the roles of your partners and that your centralized system, that when you get input from your stakeholders, once you land on a system, hold to the system and to make sure that your partners adhere to those guidelines or that guidance. Here's an example. In the former uh, uh, administration, federal administration, they were sending right the Moderna vaccine to CVS and to Walgreens and saying that they could unilaterally just administer vaccine to long-term care facilities. One hand, priority population got to get done. Other hand, they have very little experience at doing that. I think they really stumbled out of the gate. Uh, most states are still struggling with them. We brought them all in and I made it really clear you will be held accountable to the highest standards. You will do these clinics, you will communicate directly with us, you will report directly to us. And if you don't do it, there are fines and other accountability measures. And we don't wanna do that. We wanna be your partner, but we won't hesitate. And that sped up to an incredible degree, getting everyone uh, vaccinated in our long-term care facilities. Uh, but I think states struggled to figure out what their role was if the federal government was just sending vaccine directly. And in the current administration, while they're doing that with pharmacy partners and others, they make it clear to those partners that you have to follow the state's rules and protocols. And that's making a world of difference for us and I believe for uh, most of the states in the country. Now we know that uh, the demand for vaccines is high across the country. How are vaccine shortages and COVID variants shaping how you were thinking about loosening restrictions around reopening guidelines? So we, we've tried to do an interesting balance. So here's an example. You know, our case counts are lower uh, by far than they have been, Eugene, in months. Uh, feels like nearly a half a year. Uh, our positivity rate is below three statewide. And if not right today, uh, we think in the next day or so, I have to look at our map. I apologize. I can't give you that specifically. But it looks to me like every single county in the state is at a positivity rate at five, which is one of our thresholds to keep it at five or lower so that we know we are mitigating community spread so that you can introduce some risk. So we have been, if you get to five or below and you get a case count that's low enough, then you're able to do some additional capacity inside uh, businesses. We let you do safe certified, which means you gotta go through a certification process. You can have uh, additional capacity in a restaurant. And way at the end of that process, we can start to do tourism uh, and uh, maybe even some large entertainment venues at a limited capacity. Here's what won't change. Absolute mask mandates, 
mandates for social distancing, uh, making sure that businesses go through a safe certified, which also requires each business sector to have very strong uh, COVID safe practices that we approve as the state. And then we do random checks and we also have a complaint hotline. So if that's not being followed, we know about it, we do something about it. We think that coupled with vaccines. So we're seeing uh, case counts low enough that we believe that vaccines account for 20% of that incredible reduction. So to say it another way, our cases would be 20% higher without vaccines. And the variants we're concerned about, and we are doing testing, the genomic testing required. We haven't seen community spread in New Mexico related to the variants, it's all been travel. But the more vaccines, to be in the next several weeks to deal with those variants. And again, mask mandates for the entire state and all the other public health practices that we believe will make the difference as long as we keep doing the good work we're doing with vaccines. Well, speaking of getting more vaccines uh, to more people, one of the focuses that we've seen uh, increase, uh, you know, in conversation across the country uh, is related to equity and making sure that people from historically marginalized groups have access to uh, vaccines. And we know that New Mexico recently launched a vaccine equity program. Can you talk to us about that program and how it works, why it matters, who, who it helps? Absolutely. Uh, This is a state that uh, has to get the equity distribution right. We're a minority majority state. And that's not to say that that shouldn't be the case in every state. But here, you know, we are really clear about both the benefits of that and the challenges in reaching high risk populations. So what we saw, as every state did, that the majority of individuals in long-term care facilities, and still, unfortunately, uh, far too high a percentage of healthcare workers um, are uh, non-minorities. And so you have a kind of a, a, I think, artificial issue where we're all concerned about the lack of minority representations in getting vaccines out. So we looked at that data and we've decided that we can do two things better. One, we can get much more granular at the zip code level to really make sure that we're reaching high risk minority. So you've got an equity distribution uh, population. And two, we're actually going to use census data as we go granular so that we have a vulnerability index factor that looks at everything from socioeconomic status to your minority or racial status and household circumstances. That means that we're going to take a certain percentage of vaccine off the top. Uh, If long as this amount of vaccine and now with Johnson & Johnson uh, continues to increase and come to the states, uh, including us, we think that we could do 25% off the top we'll go to this vulnerability index system. We'll bring vaccine to you, mobile vehicles to you, mobile clinics to you, and set aside these vaccines and do whole populations, uh, whole sovereign nations. Uh, We'll do all of that work statewide, no matter how hard to reach you are. And then we're gonna really assess every single week 
what we're, whether we're accomplishing our goals to reach every single minority and ethnic group in the state in an equal, equitable, effective manner, which will also help us reduce spread and risk because these are the populations that have a higher mortality rate, have less access to healthcare, and when they do have access to healthcare, uh, they're sicker and more at risk uh, for longer hospital stays. So we know how valuable and important it is if we're gonna save more New Mexico lives, we're gonna keep more people out of New Mexico hospitals, and we're gonna reduce the rate of transmission in the state. And we so have I'm really excited. Question. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I'm just really excited no, that's, about that. That's quite a lot to be excited about. And, and we have an audience question that wants to ask a bit more specifically about everything you just uh, just uh, explained to us. And it's related to uh, tribal communities. It's from Gilla Bronner. And she asks, can you speak about New Mexico's collaboration with tribal communities to ensure that no group or individual is left out of vaccination? This is a really important question, and uh, Ms. Bonner, thank you very much for raising it. There is a challenge that I want to highlight first. Uh, Indian Health Service, right, which is the federal program that provides the trust responsibility for health care, and uh, they are underfunded, which means they aren't equipped to meet basic health care demands for sovereign nations. Uh, and so that's been an area I've been very passionate about that the federal government's got to do more and states can do more to supplement and support expansion for healthcare access into tribal communities. So New Mexico's got uh, the largest number of independent tribes in the country. Uh, we've got a very close working relationship, uh, but because Indian Health Service gets their own allocations, which I can see at the federal level, the aggregate amount, I can't tell you where it went in each tribal community, and I can't tell you who got that vaccine. So that's been very challenging to get our arms around, and I don't think in our state they're doing their clinics as frequently as they need to. In this federal vaccine distribution, sovereign nations were given the ability to opt out of IHS. In New Mexico, three different Pueblos uh, asked us to do their vaccines directly. And uh, in the next several days, we will have completely done every single tribal member in those three Pueblos, something I'm very proud of. As a result, we're gonna partner up with IHS and make sure that our vulnerability index work is translating. So we'll do side-by-side -side clinics with them. And here's another issue that's problematic. If you're a tribal member, an IHS, Indian Health Service, is doing a clinic, and you're married to a non-tribal member, that spouse isn't going to get that vaccine necessarily. So we're really working here to make sure that you don't leave out families in that regard. And if they need us to have vaccine available during these clinics, we will. Uh, we want folks to feel like no rondor, priority populations, uh, and to do it equitably in that fashion. So it's been challenging, but I think that we're doing a pretty effective job. I'd like better coordination with the uh, Biden administration and they're working to make that a reality uh, with New Mexico right now. Now I wanna pivot uh, to the economy a bit and but stay on topic, obviously. Uh, you were very aggressive about coronavirus restrictions from the off outset of the pandemic. 
And, and I just want to hear what you would say to critics who say business has been crushed in New Mexico, people are struggling uh, because of these restrictions. How, how are you thinking about rebuilding the state's economy? Well, one, let's own that businesses were lost, livelihoods were lost and diminished, and the financial insecurity for far too many New Mexicans and far too many Americans is real, which is why the rescue plan is so critical to us. Um, but we also stepped up as a state. And it, when I saw the pandemic coming a year ago, and we saw that one of our large energy economies was struggling, uh, I made uh, the key decisions that put more money into our reserves than originally planned. So as an example, I vetoed a $200 million appropriations bill, and we fought hard to get money into savings accounts in the state uh, so that we were as prepared to have strict restrictions because of the increased healthcare issues that we have. We don't have access in the same way other states do, and we're a minority majority state and a very poor state, which creates more risk for us. But we've had two special sessions where we provided economic relief directly to businesses as a state program, because not enough folks got that, you know, paycheck protection program by the feds. Uh, and we also did a stimulus check directly to individuals who were about to lose unemployment in the fall. And this legislative session, we're pumping about $700 million into grants and low interest loans into businesses and doing economic investments and highlighting broadband as a partnership. We believe that this gives us the best opportunity to sort of jumpstart the economy again and to shore up businesses, including allowing them to use the resources that we've set aside to deal with landlord tenant issues, right? Rent and mortgage issues, utility issues, all of the above, which is why this rescue plan is critical to New Mexico, because if that stops, then we're gonna see a decline in our economic opportunities, a drastic decline in 22 and 23, we also have half our population on Medicaid and we covered every COVID expense on the front end, all of it, which means we've got to make sure that that doesn't get passed on to businesses. Uh, and I'm incredibly confident that that is not going to happen in New Mexico. And during the pandemic, we actually lowered insurance premiums for uh, many, if not most, New Mexicans. So uh, it's critical that you do that. And that's what we did to create the kind of protections that recognize this is a cruel hardship to businesses that didn't invite a pandemic into their doors. Now, pivoting to a more national issue, we know that you are the chair uh, of the Democratic Governors Association. And last night, as I was preparing for this interview, Democratic Congresswoman Kathleen Rice of New York called on Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York to resign after a third woman accused him of sexual harassment. And I was just hoping to get your reaction as DGA chair and as a woman. Do you think the organization is going to release a statement or weigh in on this at all? I believe that we will, and we should. Uh, look, we we have to take seriously all these allegations, and I'm frankly uh, in that group 
of elected leaders that you believe the individual. Uh, you give real credit and credibility there. If you don't, we're re-victimizing uh, 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 brave men and women who come forward. And so that's critical. Here, earlier, uh, certainly you've got someone, an elected leader, who isn't challenging the veracity of the, the facts, the statements, it happened, I had staff involved, and apologized. And that's the climate we should come to expect by every elected leader in that context. And having a transparent, independent investigation so that you can look at the context of these conversations and statements, I think is important. But I, I find it very troubling, I think others do, that we have a third allegation. And uh, I know Congresswoman Rice to be a fierce champion uh, uh, in this area and has high and she should expectations for all elected leaders. And I think that folks should expect that the Democratic Governors Association will in fact release a statement. Uh, it's not, we haven't done that yet, but you should expect that we will. Given that what you've heard, uh, the third uh, uh, allegation that you mentioned, do you think the organization will call on him to resign? Uh, I think that it's troubling enough that that will be a, a significant part of the discussion, but it's premature for me to determine what governors uh, at this point, when you've got an uh, independent, transparent investigation occurring. Uh, I don't want to jump ahead, Eugene, but we will have a very serious uh, conversation about what we ought to do and what standard we expect all elected leaders, right, to uh, adhere to and stand by. And again, uh, that third allegation is troubling. Well, it I is. certainly appreciate you coming on to talk to me about everything that's happening well in New Mexico and the challenges that uh, elected officials are facing even beyond your state. And I certainly hope you come back really soon. Eugene, uh, you invite me anytime. Uh, thank you for making sure that states all across America are clear that we've got to do better. We have to do more. We have to finish getting through uh, this pandemic and that there's optimism about the effectiveness of all the vaccines. And I want to boast one more thing. You know, New Mexico, according to one healthcare systems review thus far, we've got about a 79% of the population who wants this vaccine, right? It tells me that New Mexicans are ready to see the other side. They're committed to good public health practices uh, and we're all in it together. And probably for all of our successes, it's because by and large, that's how we're treating our attack against the spread of this virus. We are all in it together. Indeed. Thanks so much for uh, talking with me, and I hope to see you again soon. Unfortunately, uh, we are out of time, uh, so we will have to leave things right there. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham did such a great job talking to us, and I certainly hope that you all come back and hear so many more of our post-live uh, sessions very, very soon. Uh, at 9 a.m. tomorrow, 9.30 a.m. actually, my colleague David Ignatius will interview Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Gorski. So you won't want to miss that. I'm going to be paying attention and so should you. I'm Eugene Scott. Thank you for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.